All right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 1, we are going to be looking at verses 9 through 11 as we continue in our sermon series in Mark. This is the third week in Mark, and we are just kind of slowly making our way through the first chapter here. And we are looking at verses 9 through 11 here. Uh, Last week, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist as he was the the, the morning star before the rising of the sun. He was like the morning star before the arrival of the new exodus, which Jesus has ushered in and, and bringing salvation to his people and a new exodus from his people, not merely from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death and Satan. He has ushered in this new exodus. And now this week we see Jesus come to be baptized, as we saw John the Baptist baptizing. He comes to be baptized in the ministry of John the Baptist. And this is a wonderful text. I mean, there I, I couldn't even work through all of the glorious things. There's a whole world in this text that we can explore. This text is like the wardrobe in Narnia. And there's, I mean, we could spend ages and ages exploring this particular text. And so part of what was difficult with this text is just kind of narrowing in on just a few things. And so uh, I'm looking forward to getting into it this morning. If you're there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Mark 1, 9 through 11, we will read... And then pray, and as I read, let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God. Let's listen with reverence and joy. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. O triune God, you are glorious. And Father, we ask that as you have revealed Jesus here, that you would so reveal him to our hearts. Help us to, to see him and savor him. Jesus, you are the, the glorious one. You are the beloved son with whom the Father is well pleased. Help our souls to be so pleased and delighted in and satisfied in you this morning as we explore this text. And Spirit, as you anointed Jesus here in this text, would you anoint the preaching and proclamation and reading of your word here that Jesus might be magnified and exalted in our hearts by faith. Lord, to that end, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can have a seat. Sinclair Ferguson put it well when he said that the baptism of Jesus marked his public inauguration as the Messiah. So you see, whenever a 
king or a priest was inaugurated as such in Israel, they weren't necessarily crowned like we would typically think. They were anointed. They were anointed. That's why Jesus is called the Messiah or the Christ, both words that literally mean anointed one. And here at Jesus' public inauguration as the Messiah, he's not crowned as we would typically think of, uh, of a king. He's anointed, and he's anointed with none other than the Holy Spirit. This is Christ's public inauguration. Now, if you've ever watched like a, a U.S. presidential inauguration, you've witnessed an event that uh, corresponds somewhat. It's when the, the president of the United States, of course, is publicly declared to be such and takes the oath of office and from that point on is publicly recognized as the, uh, the president of the United States, or at least by most people. And uh, the event itself seems to always communicate something of the individual being sworn in. Of course, you know, some things never change in the ceremony, like the, the president, the, the oath that the president takes when they're being sworn in, or uh, you know, some things are timeless, like Garth Brooks singing Amazing Grace. So you can't have a presidential inauguration without that, my goodness. But the inauguration will often include the, the presence of, you know, other previous presidents, which in some ways is to be seen as something of an endorsement of this new guy. There are often singers or poets who perform. The new president will typically give, uh, you know, a, a speech trying to bring unity and communicating something of what they'd like to accomplish during their time in office. And all of this to show the American people something of who this new president is and what they plan to do. Well, here at Jesus' public inauguration as Messiah, undoubtedly we're getting a clear picture of who he is and what he plans to do. This, this event is showing us who Jesus is. It's showing us why he's come and what he's going to accomplish as the Messiah. This is a, a revelation of who Jesus is as the, the veil between heaven and earth is torn. Literally, it says the heavens were torn open as they split open. You know, whenever uh, in the Old Testament the, the heavens uh, rend or are split open, God is revealing himself. And here the triune God is being revealed and the Father and the Spirit are showing us who this Jesus of Galilee is. In Jesus' baptism, we see Jesus is revealed as the Christ and Son of God come to save us. That's the big idea. And I have four points. And instead of starting at the beginning of the text and kind of working our way through like we usually do, I'm going to start at the end and then we're going to move our way backward. Four points. Let's dig in. So first we see that Jesus is servant. Jesus' servant. So here in, in, in Mark 1, 9 through 11, we see Jesus come to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, something rather peculiar happens. The heavens split open, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and a voice sounds from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, one thing that ought to stand out to us here is that we've seen these words before. We've seen these words before in Scripture. So the first half of the uh, sentence comes from two particular passages we'll see in a few moments. But the latter half of the sentence comes from Isaiah 42.1. Isaiah 42.1. And there, the, the Lord is promising through the prophet Isaiah, the coming, he's promising the coming of his servant who is going to carry out his mission of salvation. And I'll just read Isaiah 42.1-4. It says this, Behold my servant... 
whom I uphold, my chosen, listen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So hopefully you can see the connection here. Here in Isaiah 42, the Lord is saying that this coming servant is the object of his delight and pleasure and that he will put his spirit upon him. He is well pleased with the servant figure. And here in Mark 1:11, in the baptism of Jesus, the spirit comes upon Jesus and God declares his delight and pleasure in Jesus. And in so doing, he's publicly declaring that this Jesus is the servant figure foretold in Isaiah nearly 700 years earlier. Perhaps you remember a few years ago, during the season of Advent, we went through four texts in Isaiah that are called the servant songs of Isaiah. We find the first of these servant songs in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and then we also find the other three in 49, 1 through 6, uh, 54 through 7, and then 52, 13 through 53, 12. And these are songs or poems that are all about Jesus as God's promised coming servant who will come to save his people from their sin and suffering. And, hark- and in hearkening back to this text now, the Lord is drawing all those who witnesses uh, this event and to us here as we read Mark's uh, text, he's drawing our attention to Jesus as this servant and to his mission as such. He's drawing our attention to what Jesus has come to do as the servant of the Lord. So you'll notice here in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, how often the word justice is used. Three times in this short little text, the word justice is used. Of course, that's a word that we use a lot today. It's tossed around a lot today, especially we've heard it a lot this last week at the conviction of Derek Chauvin. And and in one sense, you know, of course, we did see justice done there. But understand, in Isaiah 42, the Lord means, when he uses the word justice, he means more than, you know, mere legal correctness or sound prosecution or right punishment for wrongdoing. He means more than that. When he talks about justice here, he's talking about human existence as it's meant to be, human flourishing. Uh, Ray Ortland puts it beautifully in his commentary on Isaiah when he, when he says this about the word justice in Isaiah 42. He says this word is also used in Exodus 26.30 of the plan for the tabernacle, the blueprint God revealed from heaven. In an analogous way, God has a blueprint for human existence. He knows how human beings and human society can be at their best. He knows how to make us happy and fulfilled. And through his servant, Jesus, he's bringing this plan down from heaven to reorder human civilization in a beautiful way. This word translated justice includes within its scope all our longings for a better life and a better world. In Mark 1.11... When God sends the Holy Spirit to rest on Jesus and declares him to be the object of his pleasure and delight, God is saying that this Jesus is the one who is bringing such a world. But then, you know, of course, you might say a lot of people have promised to to usher in a better world. Look at the, you know, look at the inauguration of every uh, president of the United States. You'll probably find some sort of promise made to this effect. 
what makes Jesus different? What makes Jesus particularly capable to do this? And that's the fact that he's not only servant, but he's son. Look with me secondly at Jesus' son. Again, verse 11 says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. And just as God's declaration of his delight comes from an Old Testament text, so does this one. It actually comes from two particular texts. First, I want to see how it echoes Psalm 2-7. Psalm 2 is a psalm which tells of the coming reign of Christ. And in Psalm 2, 7, and 8, we see God the Father address God the Son, and he says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so here we obviously see, see language similar to what we saw in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, with the Lord's you know, promise of the Lord's justice being brought to the nations and to the earth and as the coastlands or the ends of the earth wait for his law and become his possession. You know, so many connections here. But here we find that the servant who will come to establish God's kingdom in the earth is actually none other than God's son. He's God's son. And as he says in Psalm 2 here, he is God's begotten son. That's an important word. He's God's begotten son. It's because some people might tell you that Jesus is called God's son. When he's called God's son, it's not, you know, a declaration of his divinity. It's not a declaration of him being God. You know, a liberal Christian might tell you that uh, Jesus is God's child, just the way that we're all God's children. Um, or, or others, like Jehovah's Witnesses, might tell you that, that he's God's son in the same way that an angel might be called God's son. Many claim, you know, he's, he's, he's He's God's son, but he's not divine. He's an angel, or he's just like God's child like the rest of us. However, it's scripturally clear that Jesus is uniquely the son of God in that he is divine as such. As the Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus was begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence or the same substance of the Father. Because you'll, you'll see here, they said that because you'll never find language in the scriptures of Jesus being created. Instead, there's language of his being begotten. He's begotten before all ages, eternally generated from the Father, but not created. He's God from God, true God from true God. That's what the scripture means when it calls Jesus God's son. And this is clear. I mean, if, 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 if the, the Jews got this, if you look at, for, uh, at John 5.18, we find that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because, I quote, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God? Making himself equal with God and calling himself God's son and God his own father. And to kind of underline this point, Psalm 2-7 is not the, the only text that should be brought to mind here. And notice that God the Father doesn't merely say the words of Psalm 2. There's an additional word here. He says, you are my beloved son. Now this word beloved here is interesting. It's a word pregnant with meaning. Uh, one footnote puts it this way, the force of this word is often pertaining to one who is the only one of his or her class, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished. And in fact, this word is used in a Greek translation of the Old Testament in, in a text very similar to verse 11 here. We find it in Genesis twenty-two twelve. 12. 
In Genesis 22, of course, this is the, the scene in which Abraham is supposed to bring Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him as an offering to God. And when they go to the mountain, they're you know, preparing the altar uh, on which Isaac was to be sacrificed. And, and Isaac was laid on top of the wood and he was bound and tied to the altar. But then at the last moment, when Abraham raises his hand to slay his son, the Lord stops Abraham's hand and he says to them this, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing, listen, that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And in the Greek translation of this text that Mark would have read, it says something like this, you have not withheld your son, your beloved son, from me. You see, this word is communicating that Isaac belongs to a special class. He's unique. He's special to Abraham. He's Abraham's only son. And at the same time, he's particularly loved and cherished as such. Well, similarly, here in the use of this word in Mark 1.11, God the Father is saying that the Lord Jesus is his only son, his beloved. He is unique. He is preeminent. There's no one who even belongs to the same category as Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is not God's son in the same way that we are God's children as believers. You see, he is God's son by nature. He has been God's divine son for eternity past. For all of eternity, God has Jesus has been the Father's beloved. The Father's been delighting in him, taking pleasure in him, loving him as the only begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Jesus is God's son by nature. By nature, we're not God's children. By nature, we are children of wrath, says Ephesians 2. We must be adopted by God to become his children. And this is why Jesus has come. He's come that we might be saved from being children of wrath. This is why he's come to us and taken on our humanity. He has come to save us from being children of wrath and to make us children of God. This is what we find as we continue to look on. Look with me next at Jesus as Savior. Look at verse 10. Mark writes, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. All three persons of the Trinity here are acting at the baptism of Jesus. And of course, this is not the first time we've we've heard about the the third person of the Trinity in Mark's gospel. You know, just this last Sunday, we looked at Mark 1, 1 through 8. We saw that the coming Messiah will not merely baptize with water like John, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And here, the Holy Spirit is descending on Jesus as a dove, showing us that this Jesus is the Messiah that John was talking about. The one who is anointed by the Spirit here is the one who will also anoint his people with the Spirit and baptize his people with the Spirit. But then it's interesting, isn't it, that the Spirit is symbolized as a dove here. You know, what's, what's with the Spirit being symbolized as a dove, as a bird? Well, particularly two texts should come to mind for us from the Old Testament. The first is Genesis 1, 1 and 2 which says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And listen, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there in Genesis 1, we see the the creation narrative. And in verse 2, the Holy Spirit is revealed as 
present and at work in the creation of the universe. And it says that he was hovering over the face of the waters. And that word translated as hovering, there's a word that they would use to describe the the movement of a bird kind of hovering over its nest, fluttering its wings over its nest. But then furthermore, we see another bird, a dove actually, fluttering its wings over similarly chaotic waters later in Genesis 8. In Genesis 6 through 9, of course, we find God judging the people of the earth with a great flood, and he chooses Noah and his family as his people to build an ark and to be saved from the wrath to come. And so God destroys lands and peoples, and he plans to start over with a new creation and this new family. And when the floods subside, Noah sends out doves to test and see if the earth is ready for Noah and his family to exit the ark and enter into God's new creation. Well, here in Mark 1, just as the Spirit was present at the creation, hovering over the water, and just as doves were present, hovering over the water, as the flood subsided, which is a type of the new creation, so the Spirit's descending on Jesus in the water in the form of the dove is to show us that Jesus is about to bring the new creation. Jesus is the, the, the Messiah who is coming to bring about God's blueprint, God's kingdom, God's justice, God's new world, wherein there's no sadness or sickness or, or, or injustice or death anymore. A world wherein there's no more situations like Chauvin and Floyd. A world wherein there's no corruption or oppression. He's going to make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that day is coming. And it's going to be a glorious day. But, but we should say that part is coming later. Part of what we should remember as we look at, at this text and as we look at the, 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 the idea of this new creation coming, we should remember that God is starting small. Mustard seed kind of small. He's starting by making his people into a new creation, by baptizing them with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit here in Mark 1. We're baptized with the Holy Spirit and united to Christ. And when that happens, we become a new creation ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, Jesus has come and will come again to make all things new, but he's starting with us, his people. He's starting by making us new. He's starting by filling us with the presence of the living God before he comes again to cover the entirety of the earth with the presence of the same. I wonder, Christian, if you ever give thought to the reality that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, dwells within you. Do you ever give that a second thought? Do you ever give that a thought? Do you ever ever ruminate on that? That that your body is a temple for the presence of the living God. That's That's what 1 Corinthians 6 calls your body, a temple for the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, Paul actually says that this ought to actually give us reason to flee sexual immorality. He says we're to flee sexual immorality for multiple reasons, one of which being that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, so glorify God with your body, he says. Do you ever give that a thought? I wonder how much might change with the things we we do with our bodies, 
with what the, the, the words that we speak with our mouths, the, the things we view with our eyes, the things we listen to with our ears and all, if we were to remember that we are a new creation in Christ, filled and anointed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and all because Jesus has come as the Spirit-anointed Messiah to save us and include us in his new creation project, which he has received from his Father for us. But then we have to ask the question then, how does Jesus accomplish this reality? How does he go about making us a new creation in himself? How does he save us from sin and redeem us and include us in God's new creation project? We get a picture of this as well in our text this morning. In verse 9, look with me at Jesus is substitute. Of course, what might immediately come to mind is when you hear the word substitute, it's like a, you know, you're in high school and you get a substitute teacher. You're in high school, your teacher calls in sick, and, and uh, you, know, you don't just get a, a free day. You don't get to just uh, watch Netflix in, in, uh, in the classroom. Not that Netflix even existed when most of us were in high school. But uh, a substitute comes in. A substitute will come in. They'll stand in for the teacher on that day. Well, here we see that Jesus has come to stand in for us as his people. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by by John in the Jordan. So have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized in the first place? Why was he baptized in the first place? It seems strange, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem strange? I mean, as we'll come to see, as as we've already seen in, in, in Mark, This is a baptism of repentance and confession. And as we'll come to see in Mark, Jesus is the sinless one. He's the one who remains faithful. No sin, no stains, no guilt. So why does he come to be baptized by John with a baptism of repentance and confession of sin as we saw last week? My friends, this this is getting to a central and essential aspect of the mission of the, the Savior and servant and special Son of God. Remember how at in inauguration, we get a picture of who a particular figure is and what they plan to accomplish. Well, this is absolutely true here at Jesus' public inauguration as Messiah. We're seeing who he is, as we've already seen. We're seeing what he plans to do as well. You see here, he is graciously condescending in order to identify with his people in our sin. As the people of God, we're going to the Jordan River to confess sin and to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. Here, Jesus, who has no sin and no need of repentance, came to be baptized in the same river and with the same baptism in order to identify with us in our sin. And understand, he begins his public ministry in this way He makes his debut in this way. He is publicly inaugurated as the Messiah in this way because it points to an essential essential and central aspect of what he came to do regarding his later baptism in blood on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is not only baptized with water in order to identify with the sins of his people, but he takes on the sins of his people and undergoes a baptism into death and into the grave. And we find here at his public inauguration that our Messiah plans to identify in this way with his people in our sin. And this we find is is a, a, a part of his promised mission as the servant that Isaiah spoke of so long ago. Isaiah 53, 6 
Isaiah says about us and the servant, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And on into verse 11, the father begins speaking. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, he took on our sin. And covered in our sin, God took him to the mountain, just as Abraham took Isaac to the mountain so long ago. And there God has shown us and proved to us his great love for us because he has not withheld his son, his only beloved son, from us. This is how God the Son accomplishes our salvation and makes us into a new creation. He takes on our sin and he dies in our place. And on the third day, he rises from the dead as the beginning of God's new creation himself, which will one day cover the entirety of the cosmos. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has accomplished. This is what he has come to do. It has been revealed in the public inauguration of Jesus as the Messiah. In his baptism, Jesus is revealed as the Christ and Son of God come to save us. Now, two brief points of application. You know, earlier I mentioned that, that Jesus is God's Son in a unique way, in, in, in a way that no one else can claim. We are not God's children by nature. By nature, we are children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. But we can become God's children by means of God's adoption of us. And the way that this is accomplished is through Jesus and his substitution, but you have to depend on him for it. You know, if we were to summarize the gospel in, in three simple words, it would be this way. I, I think sonship through substitution. Sonship through substitution. Sonship through substitution. If you see on the cross, you see the perfect son of God there. He took on our sins, and there he was declared to be a sinner, and he was pub punished as such. He died as our substitute, so that when we depend on him, we are declared to be sons and we are rewarded as such. Jesus was declared to be sin on the cross that we might be declared sons when we start to depend on him. Sonship through substitution. That's the gospel. That's how we become objects of God's delight and pleasure ourselves. This is how our sins are taken away and our guilt atoned for and our identities changed and our adoption is accomplished when we depend on him. And as God's adopted children, we can rest assured that God's declaration of delight that he spoke over Jesus at his baptism is now spoken over us if we are in Jesus. Listen to what Michael Reeves says about this. He says, when the Spirit rested upon the Son at his baptism, Jesus heard the Father declare from heaven, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. But now that same Spirit of Sonship rests on me, the same words apply to me. In Christ, my High Priest, I am an adopted, beloved, Spirit-anointed Son. My friends, in this life, we meet with great suffering. In this life, we struggle with deep sins because of this. We may wonder sometimes what God's attitude and disposition toward us is. But if you depend on Christ for your salvation as your substitute, you don't need to wonder. 
You don't need to wonder at all. Friend, you are dearly loved. You are delighted in. God takes great pleasure in you, and there's nothing good you can do to make him love you anymore. There's nothing bad you can do to make him love you any less. His love is fixed, eternal, unchangeable. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be children of God, and so we are. And my friends, God has called you his child if you depend on Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you're listening on the live stream, I wonder if you realize that this is what you're looking for and longing for in life. This is your deepest Longing in life is to be delighted in by the God of the universe and declared to be his child. There's there's nothing that can compare to the joy and peace and comfort and assurance and confidence that such a reality brings. Well, if you would only depend on Jesus, renouncing your sin and running to him, collapsing in his arms by faith, this joy can be yours forever. Your your guilt can be taken away, your sin atoned for, your sonship secure, Christ is paid at all if you depend on him. For those of you who are Christians, my exhortation is, is simple. Just simply believe this. Believe that Christ is who God has declared him to be, and because Christ is who God has declared him to be, believe that You are who he has declared you to be in him. Christ is the servant of Isaiah's songs. He's the unique and preeminent son of God, the Savior, and your substitute. Believe that in him you have the acceptance and smile of the Father. Tell yourself this good news, that essential news, every day and bask in the joy of being God's safe and secure sons forever. There's nothing better. Just simply enjoy this. Remember this reality every day. If you've forgotten, several months ago, we looked at this subject of adoption. We looked at Packer's six things that we should tell ourselves every single day. God is my father. I am his child. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever, and every day is one day closer. Tell yourself these truths every single day. God has delighted in you as his own child in Christ. In Christ, he has made this declaration of delight over you. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. Everything has changed if you depend on Jesus. Remember this. I want to exhort you to to depend on Jesus and to remember this reality. But then, I not only want to exhort you to to depend on Jesus, I want you to to exhort you to delight in Jesus as well. Delight in Jesus. That's what we find God the Father doing here, don't we? He's delighting in Jesus. He's declaring his pleasure in Jesus because Jesus is the supremely worthy object of delight. Again, Michael Reeves. He's written, we get spiritually bored, but Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. Our boredom is simple blindness. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in Him, then He must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. I want to underline this for a moment, because I I know our church. I I know that, that we're a church very serious about doctrine and right theology, and rightfully so. We ought to be. 
But we should also know that's not enough. I think it was Lloyd-Jones that said, uh, I spend half my time trying to convince my congregation that doctrine is essential, and the other half trying to convince them that it's not enough. That's true. You know, we, we, it's not enough to have rightly constructed theological beliefs. It's not enough to have, you know, all of your doctrinal ducks in a row. It's not enough to know a lot about the Bible. I'll never forget um, sitting through my church planner's assessment with a, a number of uh, pastors from our church network, and there were several pastors there. One of them knew me fairly well, and, and he asked me this. He said, hey, when was the last time you were deeply moved by the gospel? When was the, the last time you were deeply moved by the beauty and glory and excellence of Jesus Christ? When was the last time that it brought you to tears? And it caught me off guard. I, I could not remember. And he said to me, you know, I, I find that concerning. Well, on the other hand, if I asked you when was the last time you learned something new about the gospel, you probably could have given me an answer. And he's exactly right. I, you know, I love Doctor, I love learning new things. I love gospel doctrine. I love studying the scriptures and seeing all of these connections and all these light bulbs going off. I love doctrine. Systematic theology is my love language. But if that's there, devoid of a delight in Jesus, then I'm nothing. You know, it's possible to love doctrine and scripture and not love Jesus, not delight in Jesus. Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 39-40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So my question to you today is, is do you delight in Jesus? Do you, love, do you love right doctrine about Jesus but lack true delight in Jesus? Is he... Is he altogether lovely to you like a, like a, a husband is to, her, to a, a smitten and enthralled new bride? Or is he kind of interesting to you in the same way that a cadaver might be to a scientist? Does, do you love to study Jesus? But Do you love to study Jesus? But I, I, I want to know, does he make you sing? Does Jesus make you sing? Does your doctrine lead to doxology and delight in the Jesus that you're studying? If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in Him, then He must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. So in closing, my exhortation to you today is to look on Him, to behold Him in all of His excellence and beauty today and worship him as the one true son of God, the beloved, the unique, the preeminent one. There's no one like him in heaven or on earth. There's no one so pure, so true. He's the servant of Isaiah's songs, who's borne our iniquities and our sorrows, who was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and who will one day return to usher in God's blueprint for the new creation. He's the Son of God in Psalm 2, who's the only begotten one. He is the uniquely beloved of the Father, the only one of His class. He's the Savior who is ushering in God's promised salvation and who will one day make all things new, beginning here, now, and with us, 
By anointing us with the Holy Spirit, He is our substitute who is so kindly, so humbly, so graciously identified with us in our sin, who died a sinner's death for us, that we might become His brothers and sisters and children of His Father in heaven. He's our Messiah. He's the Son of God. There's no one so high yet so humble. There's no one so glorious, so good, so gracious, and so we ought to delight in Him. And worship him this morning as the Christ and the Son of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are glorious. You are the excellent one. You are so high and lifted up, yet so humble and gracious and kind to us. We worship you as the servant of Isaiah's songs. We worship you as the only begotten of the Father and the beloved of the Father before all ages. We worship you and we pray that you would ignite in our hearts such a a delight in you this morning. And we pray that as we delight in you, that you would also deepen our assurance that in you we are also the beloved of the Father and His delight. Help us to remember that always. Help us to remember our adoption and to to bask in the beams of your loving and glorious face. Lord, help us to remember these things and to live in light of them always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.